Tēnā koe, no mai, hardy mai. My name is Will Appleby, and you're listening to Animal Matters. Parliament has officially begun for 2020, with its first sitting day earlier this month on the 9th of February. Backbench MPs have been busy submitting members' bills to the biscuit tin. Members' bills have historically have had little chance of succeeding. The chances of having a bill drawn from the ballot each year are incredibly slim, and then they're almost always voted down at the first reading. There are some notable exceptions to the rule, though, like Louisa Wool's Marriage Definition of Marriage Amendment Bill, which legalised marriage equality, and David Seymour's End-of-Life Choice Bill, which legalised assisted dying for the terminally ill following a referendum last year. But a small rule change introduced in the 2020 review of the standing orders has potentially made this all so much easier. It slipped under everyone's radar, but in an article for Newsroom, University of Auckland politics lecturer Dr Lara Greaves said it's a major constitutional change. This is particularly relevant for greyhound racing. More on this later. We also had another lockdown, following community transmission in Auckland. Lockdowns tend to suck up all of the oxygen in the media landscape, and animal stories often fall by the wayside. But we're still here to speak up for animals, and there's plenty to talk about from over the past few weeks. Okay, so you may be wondering what on earth all this talk of biscuit tins and members bills is about, and what any of this has to do with greyhound racing. Bear with me for a moment, because I'm about to be a bit of a political nerd. There's two types of bills. Well, actually there's four. There's government bills, members bills, local bills, and private bills. Private bills ask for a change to the law for the benefit of a particular person or group like a business. They're very rare, so not worth mentioning. Local authorities may put forward a local bill to deal with specific issues in the area, which is called a local bill. Also uncommon and kind of not relevant to this discussion. Government bills are the most common. The government of the day has a lawmaking programme. As part of this programme, government bills are prepared for ministers to introduce to the House. That's where all the MPs sit. Then there are members' bills. These used to be called private members' bills, but they changed the name to avoid confusion with private bills. Members' bills are submitted by non-executive MPs, so basically anyone who isn't a minister or the speaker. These MPs are commonly referred to as backbench MPs, or backbenchers. The ballot box is a biscuit tin. Seriously. Parliament uses a biscuit tin, which was bought from Decker about 30 years ago. Kiwi listeners will know what Decker was. The tin was repurposed with a label slapped to the front of it with sticky tape, and contains 93 housey counters, one for each backbencher in Parliament. Each backbench MP can only have one member's bill submitted at any given time. If you haven't seen it, look up the biscuit tin of democracy. It's actually pretty great. A member's bill is drawn from the ballot every second Wednesday when Parliament is sitting. Sounds like a lot until you remember Parliament only sits for 90 days a year. Alternate Wednesdays is about 14 days a year. So pickings are slim. Some member's bills sit there and never get drawn. 
but a change to Parliament standing orders could make it a lot easier for backbench MPs to get their bills debated in the House. What the rule change says is if a backbench MP can get 60 other non-executive members, that's anyone who isn't a minister, to support his or her bill, it automatically gets introduced. No more waiting around until it's drawn from the ballot. That biscuit tin I was talking about. It's a big ask though. There are 120 MPs, of whom 27 are in the executive team, 26 ministers, plus Speaker Trevor Mallard, who introduced the change. So a bill would need to get two-thirds of support of the remaining MPs. But it does mean if an MP can build consensus amongst other MPs, they could get their bill read in the House. Perhaps on an issue that MPs care about but isn't politically controversial and where the parties don't have an official stance. Perhaps greyhound racing, for example. Because Green MP Chloe Swalbrick has announced that she will be submitting a member's bill to ban greyhound racing. If she can convince 60 other MPs that her bill should be heard, then it could be brought to its first reading, skipping the biscuit tin altogether. A ban on greyhound racing is Green Party policy, outlined in their election manifesto last year. The other parties, National, Labour, Māori and ACT, don't have policies on greyhound racing, so it's yet to be seen what the appetite will be amongst other parliamentarians, and whether or not the parties will whip their MPs to vote across party lines, or allow them to vote with their conscience. It could be a long shot, but it does mean a ban on greyhound racing doesn't have to wait for the government to sponsor a bill, or a chance encounter with the biscuit tin. As if cruelty on the racetrack wasn't bad enough, even dogs kept as companion animals have been facing some trouble lately. Staff reported earlier this month that there appears to be a spike in the number of dogs being stolen. In January, a 62-year-old amputee said he was assaulted whilst trying to stop his eight-week-old Rottweiler puppies from being taken. Also, a few weeks ago, a puppy was stolen after a physical confrontation between two people in Auckland. Thankfully, the dogs were rescued and returned. But the incidents are alarming and demonstrates the side effects when there is such high demand for purebred or pedigree dogs. Some dogs sell for as much as $8,000. Earlier this month, Trade Me has seen 28,000 searches for puppies in the previous week, a 34% jump on the same time last year. It's insane. It has to be acknowledged that the theft of any dog is appalling and should never happen. But what's really sad, I think, is while people are stealing dogs or paying exorbitant prices for pedigree dogs, there's still hundreds, if not thousands of dogs all across the country in rescue shelters. Animal charities are often screaming out for new loving homes to adopt their dogs out to. Mixed breed or other rescue dogs are still amazing animals and just want a loving home to go to. If more people were willing to adopt their next dog rather than purchase a pedigree from a breeder or off trade me, there wouldn't be quite such the demand. Demand drives prices and when the price of anything reaches such heights, there's always the risk that it can incentivize theft. Not to mention that it's senseless to breed more dogs when there are so many wanting a home to go to. So all that's left to be said is, adopt, don't shop. Regular listeners of Animal Matters would have heard me go on about the live export review, which the government launched nearly two years ago. Unfortunately, there's no news on that front. We're still waiting. 
But there's an emerging situation in the Mediterranean that's reignited some concerns of the trade. Currently, thousands of cars are stranded at sea on two live export ships that left Spain on the 18th of December. The two vessels were bound for Libya, but following an onboard outbreak of the viral disease Blue Tongue, they've both been refused entry at multiple ports. Marine traffic websites indicate that the two ships departed Spain with about 2,600 cows on board between them. To date, they've been at sea for nine weeks. Campaigners are desperately trying to seek veterinary support for the animals. The crisis is reminiscent of the Cormo Express disaster. In 2003, Saudi Arabia rejected a shipment of over 57,000 Australian and New Zealand sheep on board the Cormo Express on alleged disease grounds and refused to unload them. After two months at sea and unable to find a port, around 6,000 sheep died on board. Following this disaster, the New Zealand government suspended the export of live sheep for slaughter, and in 2007, a conditional prohibition on the export of livestock for slaughter was introduced. The current crisis in Europe raises questions about the contingencies New Zealand has in place for delayed live export ships. Under current rules, New Zealand would not be prepared if a ship carrying New Zealand animals is stranded at sea. New rules introduced following the capsize of the Gulf Livestock 1 require at least 20% of feed is available for unplanned delays during the voyage. For a typical voyage to China of 16 days, this would mean the ship would need 3-4 to four days worth of extra feed. So even under these new rules, a week's delay could mean thousands of starving animals. If for whatever reason a ship was rejected from China and had to be sent back to New Zealand... That's another 16 days. And while this latest live export disaster is unfolding, we're still waiting on the Agriculture Minister's live export review. It's been nearly two years, and last year we saw over 100,000 cars exported from New Zealand, over seven times the number we exported two years ago. It's fair to say live export is bad news, and the government really needs to get a move on. Last year, SAFE and the New Zealand Animal Law Association successfully argued in court that the use of firing crates should be phased out. In November, the High Court ruled that the regulations and minimum standards regarding the use of mating stools and firing crates were unlawful and invalid. And in December, the government quietly announced that the traditional use of firing crates would be phased out. The pork industry is not happy about it, and they're not being quiet about it either. Federated Farmers on their Fed News website published an article where New Zealand Pork said that the change would jeopardise their farmers. Other talking heads spoke out as well, like Dr Christy Chidke, an animal welfare scientist for New Zealand Pork, who said in a story published in a number of NZME newspapers that she fears for the future of the New Zealand pork industry. They're obviously lobbying the government, and they're apparently part of the working group drafting the new Code of Welfare for Pigs, providing input to the NARWAC subcommittee. You won't hear much sympathy coming from this direction, but what's been interesting to observe is the PR machine revving up at NZ Pork. An opinion piece that was published on the New Zealand Herald's website titled Why Banning Pig Firing Crates is a Backward Step really caught my interest. It was allegedly written by Taranaki pig farmer Carl Stanley. I say allegedly because I am highly sceptical that this farmer wrote this opinion piece. No disrespect to Carl, 
but I haven't managed to find any other comment piece published anywhere from this person. And this piece is extremely well written. Either someone with a background in public relations wrote this for Carl, or they heavily edited his draft. Now to be fair to Carl, he was interviewed on the country shortly after his opinion piece was published. But that was still on the back of this piece being published. The point is, New Zealand pork are worried, and they're obviously throwing their resources at this. The fight to keep firing crates is still on for them. Thank you for listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation, and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Please make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite podcast platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. Until next time, mate wa.